evidence and answers. You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the arena of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today on Evidence and Answers, Pat will once again provide us with a compelling interview with his guest, Dr. Donald Williams. The discussion at hand, C.S. Lewis and his argument from desire. If you're unable to hear this entire broadcast, all of our messages are available on our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Now here's Pat Zucran with his guest, Dr. Donald Williams, with part two. It applies to all the thoughts of the person who disagrees with you. Who's going to judge between these thoughts? Another person whose thoughts also are the inevitable workings out of the laws of chemistry and physics inside his head, not beliefs that he has chosen or that he has seen to be true based on reason. So naturalism then self-destructs. It destroys itself. The natural, I mean, naturalism, I suppose, could be true, but the naturalist can't assert that it's true. He can't claim that it's true because he has given up his right to talk about truth. So if you can't say that naturalism is true, but you can say that it's false, if God exists, then there is a reason for believing in truths other than just the fact that they happen to be the way the chemistry in our brains worked out. So the atheist ground is cut out from under him. If atheism is true, we can no longer say that atheism is true. The Christian can make truth claims about God without self-contradiction. The atheist cannot. And so that, that puts the atheist in a rather difficult position. Yeah, so those are three powerful arguments that C.S. Lewis presented and still very relevant for today. Absolutely. Now, you say his most characteristic argument may be the argument from desire, and it's briefly summarized in that famous sentence that he wrote in Mere Christianity. He said, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And you yeah, say... Let, let's actually yeah. back up a couple of sentences from there, because if we do, it'll make the force of that argument, I think, a lot more clear. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there's such a thing as sex. And so you can't find a desire that doesn't have an object. Every desire you list, and that list could go on and on and on, and, you know, if we are created with a desire for something, it doesn't prove we're going to get that thing, but it does pretty much prove that such a thing exists. Therefore, and we come to the sentence that you quoted, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And, of course, that other world would be heaven. Yes, and I guess, you know, the first question we have is, does the existence of a desire, you know, is that evidence, in fact, that there exists that object of my desire? You know, some may argue, say, I really desire a unicorn. You know, I really want to see a unicorn. 
or a Superman, but does that object really exist just because I have that desire? How would you answer that? Well, yeah. The argument from desire has a couple of problems, and that's one of them. That is, there are a couple of things you have to get past in order to make it really work. person who desires unicorns doesn't desire something that is completely non-existent because he got the idea of a unicorn from somewhere. As he read a story about unicorns, we have Superman, you know, we have uh, all of those comic books, and now we have the movies, and uh, some of us really want Superman to exist. Well, what are you desiring if you desire a unicorn? You're desiring beauty and elegance and purity in an animal to the point where actual animals don't have it. In Superman, you're desiring power, strength, devoted to truth, justice, and and the American way in a way that normal people don't have it. Now, that doesn't prove that Superman exists, but it does prove that strength and power and justice exist. It doesn't prove that a unicorn exists, but it does prove that beauty and purity exist. So the argument from desire might not prove that by itself. It doesn't prove that the God of the Bible exists, but it strongly indicates that something beyond the natural world exists. So if we're looking for strength in the service of truth, justice, and the American way, we might have to recognize, okay, well, Superman isn't the form of that we're actually going to find in the real world, but we can find people who do exemplify those things. So what is it that we're desiring when we desire something that nothing in this world can satisfy? Is that the God who's the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? Ultimately, I would say it is, but the argument from desire by itself can't get you there. All it can tell you is something more than just naturalism, something more than just the physical world must exist, because if it didn't, I wouldn't have this desire for it. Now, what is the actual form that takes? Is it Allah? Is it Jehovah of the Old Testament, who's not a trinity? Is it the trinity of Christianity? You've got to supplement it with other arguments in order to actually get there. But the argument from desire does point us in that direction. And that's certainly what it did for Lewis. Uh, Lewis never claimed that the argument from desire proved that the Christian God exists. But it's the argument from desire along with the trilemma and the moral argument and the argument from reason I suppose it's like triangulation, you know, where you get a bead on your thing from different locations and where those lines cross is where the thing is. Well, the argument from desire, along with, say, the trilemma, when you find the point where they cross, that's the thing we're looking for. And that will, in fact, be the God of the Bible, who's the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, you know, that's a good point you bring up, that the case for the truth of Christianity really isn't built on just one argument alone. It's a cumulative case. 
That's right. Yeah. And I remember being in a radio debate with an atheist, and he said, give me the one argument that proves Christianity is true, the one argument. And I said, well, I can't, because Christianity is a cumulative case. We can argue from reason, from science, from desire, from you know, morality and on. But it's a cumulative case, not just, you know, one silver bullet that's going to, you know, prove Christianity is true. So you bring up a great point there. This is one of many arguments that build a powerful case for the truth of Christianity. That's right. I think, I mean, there are maybe a couple of arguments that if you had to depend on just one, they would would work pretty well. The resurrection for, of Christ I think if you were going to just go with one thing, you might go with that. But fortunately, we're not limited to just one thing. The historical argument for the resurrection by itself is sufficient, but it's even more powerful when it's backed up by the moral argument, the argument from reason, etc. In other words, we can tell the existence of something very like God makes a lot of sense. Therefore, it's easier to believe that that God might have raised Jesus from the dead. They all do work together to support each other. Well, I but guess if I, if yeah. I were asked for just one, mm-hmm. I, I think I might say, well, but we don't have to limit ourselves to just one like you did. But I think with just one, I could uh, make a pretty good run at it if I stuck with the historical evidence for the resurrection of Christ. Oh, okay, great. Well, you know, here's another objection to the argument from desire. Do people actually experience a real desire that no finite temporal thing can satisfy? Yeah, that's a good question. And a lot of people would would say they don't. And it's probably not possible to prove them wrong because that would be like that would be proving a negative. You know, it's, it's philosophically just about impossible to prove a negative. If if I want to prove there's such a thing as a black swan, all I've got to do is find one. If I want to prove there's no such thing as a black swan, I've got to examine every swan in the universe and then somehow have some way of making sure I didn't miss one. So it's practically impossible. So if somebody is saying, there's no desire, I don't have any desires that can't be fulfilled in this world, and I'm saying, oh, there is a desire that cannot, you know, every desire you mention, they're going to come up with something that they say will fulfill it. But does it really? I think, I think a lot of people are in denial. That is, we don't want to believe that in order for me to be, I, I don't want to believe that in order for me to be totally fulfilled as a human being, I have to seek something outside of this world. You know, I want to believe that the next job or the next woman or the next superhero movie will actually make me happy. And so no matter how many times that doesn't work out, I'm still going to be saying, well, but I just haven't found the right one yet. And you can keep saying that your whole life and die disillusioned. Or at a certain point, you can say, well, you know, I've been down this road a whole bunch of times and got the same result. Maybe I should consider the possibility that there is something else that I'm really looking for. And then, of course, it turns out that St. Augustine was right. We are made with a trinity-shaped vacuum in our hearts, and our hearts are restless until they rest in him. 
but you can't really just get somebody to that point purely by logical argument. I think life experience, you have to have enough life experience where you come to the point where you're ready for a different answer. You know, you come to the point where, you know, the next woman I fall in love with is not actually going to be the answer, and you begin to, to doubt that, that she will, then you're ready to be presented with another alternative. What if this failure to find fulfillment in the things of this world is actually here for a purpose, to point us away from the false fulfillments to that which is the true one that will actually satisfy us and not only satisfy us here and now, but be strong enough to satisfy us for all of eternity. What if there's something that could make life so worth living that you'd want to do it forever? And the argument from desire, I think it's like a, a lot of, of these arguments, is it may not actually prove that God exists, but it clarifies the alternatives and lets you see clearly what the real question is. What makes more sense for me to try one more thing and then end up just becoming a disillusioned, cynical, bitter person? Or maybe I should try a whole different kind of thing. Maybe I was made for another world. And if that's true, could Jesus Christ be the way, the truth, and the life, the door that opens that other world for me? Uh, you need to get people to the place where they're willing to even consider that. And, of course, that's not a place where they naturally start out wanting to go. So you're going to get resistance. People are going to keep looking for something that will fulfill them. Or they will try to convince themselves that they've found something that does. But I think when they're all alone right before they fall asleep at night, they must know that it doesn't. And so we have to be patient with them, and sometimes we have to let life bring them to the point where they're ready to hear the answer that we have to give. Yes, you know, I think you bring up a great point there. You know, C.S. Lewis stated that he said most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. And so he says, you know, because we're made in the image of God, we really looked in ourselves that desire really is there in all of us and he talked about several ways people deal with it which you brought up he said the first is the fool's way and yeah. they put the blame on the things themselves and they go throughout life seeking to attain the object of joy in the next thing a better wife a better car a better job a bigger house you know and they keep going and going and never really get it or as you mentioned the the way of the disillusioned the person decides that this desire really was an illusion and he just settles for reality and from there on not expecting too much and repressing the part of himself that embraced that kind of uh, delusion, you know, what he sees as delusional thinking. And those are the two ways an unbeliever will deal with that issue of desire. People and, are going to try to do that as long as they can get yeah. to the end of their rope, unfortunately. You know, we, we can't give people a magic apologetic formula. If you go out and you say, A, B, C, ergo D, that's going to get the job done. Maybe it should, but in fact, people are stubborn. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. And so 
the great thing to keep us from getting discouraged by that is to realize that life and the universe are our allies. They are going to take people to the place where they at least have the opportunity to give up those false hopes. And uh, it's our job to be there and be ready with better answers when that happens. Yeah, so uh, what do you do for the person, let's say, that, you know, I think most people I run into will say, well, I'm, I'm satisfied with where I'm at, you know, especially here in Hawaii. I got the beach, got my friends, I got my beer. Hey, I'm fine with it. Yeah, well, you know, a lot of us over here just think if we could live in Hawaii, that that would do it. <laughs> And I, uh -huh. I bet you have depressed people in Hawaii. Oh, yes, we do. Uh-huh. And in fact, it, it's kind of, you know, sometimes you get there, and yeah, it's a wonderful place, and it is paradise as far as we can have it on Earth, and yet I'm still not happy now you get really depressed. Right. You know, because uh, where do you go from here if this wasn't it? Uh, what would you say if you're dialoguing with that kind of person that says, oh, I'm just satisfied with the way things are. I think I would just remember, you know, the old adage, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. But then there's a second part to that, which people don't realize, and that is, but you can feed them salt. You can put salt in the horse's hay. Right. And that'll kind of encourage him to be a little bit more interested in drinking. We need to be people who live a life of transcendent joy so that somebody who's been satisfied by lesser things just can't maintain that position in our presence. Not because we're arguing them out of it, but, you know, it's like, wow, why am I not as joyful as this person? We fail to attract people to the Christian life because we're not living it ourselves. That's a good point. And we need to offer such people salt to make them more thirsty by being people who, and you can't fake it, because if you try to fake it, it's, it's worse than, than not even doing anything. But we need to let the joy of our salvation, our salvation and the joy of knowing Christ be so powerful in our lives that people won't be able to look at us and say, you know, I'm perfectly satisfied with where I am. We need people looking at us and saying, oh, my goodness, I want what these people have. Where do they get this peace? And sometimes, unfortunately, we're going to have to go through some tough times because it's only fully impressive when people see you having peace in spite of your circumstances. You know, th think about Johnny Erickson Tata, for example, the quadriplegic. You know, she's got zero arms and legs that work. She does everything with her mouth, and she paints these beautiful pictures by holding a paintbrush in her teeth. When you look at a person like that, and she is capable of living a life of meaning and purpose and fulfillment and peace and joy in spite of those circumstances, man, that is pretty hard to argue against. Now, I'm not suggesting we should all go out and become quadriplegics, <laughs> but... Now, life is going to give you opportunities to show the difference that Christ makes, and we need to be people who are living close enough to him that he shines through us. And if that's not happening, man, you, you can argue better than Bill Craig and C.S. Lewis put together, and it's not going to get you anywhere. 
one of the things that made C.S. Lewis effective was that the life of Christ in him was very genuine and people could tell. We all need to be moving in that direction. I'm not where I should be yet myself in that way, but I think I see the direction in which I need to be stumbling. And so trying to stumble that way. Yeah, that's a. Hope yeah. your uh, hope your listeners will want to stumble along with us. Yes, that that's a great great point you bring up. You know, I guess as we bring this great interview to a close, you know, there are some people who criticize and say, you know, well, the hope or desire for heaven and eternal life and a God the Father really is it's just the form of escapism. The old saying, Christians become so heavenly minded, they're of no earthly good. Is that a, how would you answer that criticism? Well, we need to be able to answer it by simply being examples of the opposite, being people who are so heavenly minded that we finally are some earthly good. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah uh, Paul Stuckey, the Paul of Peter, Paul, and Mary, was a Christian and had a solo career that most people don't know about. No, I, a, wow, a first time. Singer. Yeah. Oh, after uh, Peter, Paul, and Mary broke up. And he has a song that I think just nails it. I wonder, have you ever been to the mountain to look at the valley below? Did you see all the roads tangled down in the valley? Did you know which way to go? Well, the mountain stream runs pure and clear, and I wish to my soul I could always be here. But there's a reason for living way down in the valley that only the mountain knows. We need to be people who are fully engaged in this life, righting wrongs, doing acts of practical love, and doing it joyfully. And people need to see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. And they need to see that those good works are being motivated by our vision of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Nothing less than that is at all worth living for. And we need to be pursuing that vision and living in the light of it. And a lot of these questions will kind of answer themselves once that's true. Yes, you know, C.S. Lewis brought up a great point. He said throughout Christian history, it's those who did the most in this present world were those who thought most of the next. And like the apostles evangelicals who abolish slavery, uh, those today who battle oh, yeah. hunger and willing to die for their cause, knowing that not only is it a noble and true cause for the sake of Christ, but that there's a greater world that awaits us right. all. So they're willing to put their lives on the line. William Wilberforce, like who brought yeah. an end to the slave trade in England, was specifically motivated by his Christian, his evangelical Christian faith. And, yeah, we need a lot more Wilberforces running around. Yeah. I think C.S. Lewis said, correct me if I'm wrong, aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. That's right. Yeah. Yes, you've been listening to a great interview with Dr. Donald Williams, professor at Tacoa Falls College there in Georgia. He's the RA Forest Scholar there and also professor of English there. He's written a great number of books uh, but also, Dr. Williams, you've got a website. If people want more information on you and the information that you shared today and your books and articles, where can they go to get more information? Just www.donaldtwilliams, one word, no period, donaldtwilliams.com. Fantastic. 
That's been our interview with Dr. Donald Willems. I'm sure we'll be having more interviews with him. So, Donald, thanks for being here on Evidence and Answers. My pleasure. Once again, our time has come to a close. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers radio broadcast. We hope you enjoyed Pat's show today. If you would like Pat to speak to your church, Bible study, or perhaps even at a conference, please give him a call. That's area code 808-483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Evidence and Answers relies on generous support from you, our listeners. To keep this broadcast on the air, you have the opportunity to donate. Head on over to our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You may do so right there online on the homepage. We have a wide variety of resources available to you. Everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with your family, your friends, and your church. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, visit them online at hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran. Evidence and Answers.